Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Sean Francis, my go-to guy on American soccer and pop culture, explains why he thinks soccer is having a cultural moment in the United States. In my mind, soccer is kind of this alternative sport. You know, it's kind of the team sport that people that don't like team sports like. I'll age myself, but it's think about when Nirvana blew up in 1994 or whatever. Every kid that wanted to beat you up in school suddenly wanted to know where you got your Nirvana t-shirt. All that and more coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up, U.S. men's national team captain Michael Bradley did something on Saturday that I've never had an interviewee do in my 21 years as a journalist. He came out publicly and said he had been too soft in his critical comments on the President of the United States. On Saturday night, I interviewed Bradley for 15 minutes for an upcoming Sports Illustrated magazine article on U.S. coach Bruce Arena. It is always going to be jarring when you transition from questions about soccer to ones like... As the U.S. captain, how do you feel about Trump's Muslim ban? Bradley, to his credit, did not duck the question. He gathered himself, went silent for several seconds, and then said that while he understood the desire for security, the U.S.'s openness to people from across the world is one thing that makes this country so special. I posted Bradley's words. Then a couple hours later, Bradley posted another statement on his Instagram, saying what he had said before was, quote, too soft. Bradley said he was sad and embarrassed. When Trump was elected, Bradley wrote, I only hoped that the President Trump would be different than the campaigner Trump, that the xenophobic, misogynistic, and narcissistic rhetoric would be replaced with a more humble and measured approach to leading our country. I was wrong, and the Muslim ban is just the latest example of someone who couldn't be more out of touch with our country and the right way to move forward, end quote. I can imagine a lot of other U.S. captains who would have just said, no comment. That would have been the safe route. Michael Bradley did not take the safe route. That's leadership. Take two. Next up, like Michael Bradley, I want to add to something I posted on Twitter when the Muslim ban was announced on Friday. I wrote, in case you can't tell, sports means nothing right now. I do think we're at a defining moment in the history of our country and showing what we want to be to the world. I do think a sports result is awfully trivial compared to that. But it's also true that sports, like the arts, can be a welcome respite from the 24-hour news cycle when your mental health demands it. Sports, as Michael Bradley has shown, can also be a platform for social change and commentary. We've also had Jeff Cameron on this podcast talking about why he supports the Republican Party. I never understood why people say sports and politics don't mix. Of course they do, and there is nothing wrong with that. As for my own work, I'm going to be a professional and keep covering soccer, keep recording this podcast. An individual sports score doesn't mean much to me right now, but sports as a whole, they can still mean something. Take three. Finally, the U.S. tied Serbia 0-0 on Sunday in Bruce Arena's first game back with the national team, a January friendly that, like all January friendlies, meant absolutely nothing. And yet afterward, we saw on Twitter the reemergence of a peculiar subset of U.S. fans demanding that heads roll based on the result of a January friendly that had 12 substitutions in it. Maybe it's a reflection of new U.S. fans that don't realize different games have different stakes. Maybe some fans are unhappy that Jurgen Klinsmann was fired or that Arena was hired. But there's a reason I don't even bother to go to January friendlies to cover them. They don't matter. What does matter right now is the work that Arena is doing behind the scenes, setting a new tone inside the national team. So save your angst for the two World Cup qualifiers in March. Those results matter. A lot. Now, my interview with Sean Francis. Our guest today is someone I like to call my go-to guy on American soccer cool. There are a lot of people in the U.S. soccer landscape who have fascinating stories, and Sean Francis is one of them. Sean, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about a few things, including kind of the cultural moment of American soccer, which I know you have a lot of thoughts about. But first, let's get into who you are. For our listeners out there, 
what do you do now in soccer and, and what did you do to get here? Who I am? What did I do to get here? Well, now I'm uh, director of social media for an agency called Team Epiphany. Based here in Manhattan, we've got an office in Portland as well. We've got a couple of people scattered around the country as well, but we're like a brand solutions agency. Uh, I specifically work mostly on soccer and music stuff. So when a brand says, hey, we want to activate around soccer, we just signed this big sponsorship deal. How do we do it? They come to us. Um, spent a lot of probably the last four and a half years working on Nike soccer. Spent a lot of time on Heineken soccer initiatives now with UCL and MLS, a couple other things. How I got here is a, a, a bit of a long winding tale. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. So let's sort of maybe go back to just when you first got into soccer, where you were when that happened. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like most kids in America, I got into soccer super young. I was, you know, probably six, seven years old. Town called Denison, Texas, uh, kind of hometown for me. Uh, moved around a lot, but Texas, Louisiana is kind of where I come from. And, uh, you know, my mom signed me up for soccer and loved it. Loved it. Played a couple times a week. Thought I was it. The only thing I really knew about soccer, and we're talking this is, you know, the early 80s. Pele was literally the only soccer player I knew and had heard of. I have an old brother who, you know, he would talk about the New York Cosmos and the Chicago Sting every once in a while, but mm-hmm. I don't remember seeing any of that on TV huh. or anything. But, you know, it was just like Pele was like like school ground legend, you know? Yeah. You just kind of knew he was the guy. Um, but, you know, this was the early 80s in a small town. There was no soccer in schools. There was no travel soccer around. I think there was a there was a team, you know, a, a town two or three two or three towns away that had a, a youth travel soccer team, but we certainly wouldn't have had the money to join it or anything. So after I played for two or three years as a kid, it just kind of fell off the radar. Mm-hmm. Being a small town in Texas, it was all about football. When I got into middle school, started playing football. That was it. You know, um, our town. Our high school team in 1985 won the Texas 4A state championship, which is, you know, it, you know. Right. This is a town of 22,000 people with an 8,000-seat high school football stadium that's sold out every night and has a waiting list for season tickets. <laughs> and, you know, so I was at that age, it was like football was it, you know. In your town, you just you idolize these high school guys just like you would idolize Troy Aikman or Emmitt Smith or any of the Dallas Cowboys that you would see on Sunday. So I would just kind of was in the American football rabbit hole, middle school, played in high school for about my junior year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it just, uh, we'd moved to West Texas, Amarillo, you know. Uh, and yeah, at some point I just kind of had a cultural disconnect, shall we say, with the, <laughs> the guys on my football team who would, you know, they, they're just, just, a, just a little bit, uh, you know, just a little different type of guy. And I kind of got... <laughs> Kind of got ill with it and just kind of walked away from it. And still, soccer wasn't on the radar. There was no Fox Sports Channel yet. There was right. there wasn't any of that. You know, I think it was. And then the summer I graduated high school was 1994, and the World Cup came mm-hmm. to the U.S. And my older brother and my girlfriend at the time spent you know that whole month on the couch watching the U.S. team and just kind of that really rekindled it for me. And then mm-hmm. around that time, you were hearing that oh, they're going to start a league. You know, MLS was kind of the talk. Two years later, we got MLS. By the time we got MLS, I had moved to the Dallas area mm-hmm. uh, to go to college, the University of North Texas, go Eagles. Denton, Texas, the home of happiness. And uh, one of my buddy's dads had Dallas burn tickets. This okay. Is, you know, Cotton Bowl days, Ariel Graziani, uh, Chad Deering, Bobby, Good teams. Bobby Ryan, the man, God rest his soul. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we would go and we'd, you know, see Carlos Valderrama and all those old guys. It was great. And that kind of got me, that got my connection back, really back to soccer. World Cup, I was like super interested for a month. But again, you didn't see it. You know, Man United wasn't on Saturday morning TV yet, you know. So you didn't really see it. And that started going to the game, like really rekindled um, my kind of love affair with it. Spent, you know, two or three years in college, kind of going to the games three, four times a year. Mm-hmm. Got out of college. I graduated on a Saturday. The following Tuesday, I'd moved to London, had no job, <laughs> had uh, two suitcases, a backpack, and a boom box, and was staying with my friend's parents' house because they were, they were, they'd left London to go to this summer home in Devonshire. They were very <laughs> snooty. Um, and uh, for about a month there, I found a place in Fulham. Hmm. And this is 
in the pre-full America days, you know, okay. I mean, this was the only Americans they had at the time were Eddie Lewis, who was always injured and could never get on the field. Marcus Hanneman was the backup goalkeeper. They were still in the first division, uh, but it was this magic season where they also had Edwin Vandesar, mm-hmm. they had Louis Saha. This was before Manchester United came and snatched them all up, but that was the season they won promotion, and they absolutely destroyed the first division. I think they won their first 11 games. Wow. Um, it was pretty magical. So, you know, that experience, like going to Craven Cottage and being able to walk there every day, that I was hook, line, and sinker, like back in. Left London, moved to New York, immediately started going to Metro Stars games. Like the first like two games I went to, I would be sitting, you know, somewhere midfield, the equivalent football equivalent, American football equivalent of a forty or fifty yard line. Mm-hmm. And I would spend half the game looking at these fools behind the goal, going nuts and wondering, who are these guys? What is going on back there? I don't know, but I want to get involved. Did some research online, found out about the ESC. Muscled my way into that, kind of wedged myself in there. Empire Supporters Club. The Empire Supporters Club. Hail, hail. Um, You know, which is is kind of funny, I think, about now because, you know, known a lot of those guys for 15 years now. But I think about it now, like, they're probably like, who is this weird Texan guy that just, like, showed up and was just, like, kind of insinuating myself into the situation? Um, But, yeah, I just kind of really ran headlong into that and that. You know, by that point, it was soccer had become, you know, uh, I don't want to say an obsession, but outside of work. And at some point in here, I'd met my wife, had my first kid, you know, outside of work and family, like soccer had become like my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in the music industry at the time. You were at MTV, right? Yeah. At that time, I was at MTV. I'd worked for a couple of labels before that. Sony interned at Virgin. Worked for Knitting Factory, live music venues. I'd been DJing. Like, I was just, music was always my thing from a very young age. But at a very young age, you know, and I say young age, maybe 10 or 12, when every American kid has their rock star dreams, I remember some reading my older, my older brother used to just have a mag, a stack of magazines in his bedroom, Rolling Stones, Spin, all those kind of music mags at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading this interview in this, and I, to this day, I can't remember who said it, but it, it was so profound on me because they said, you know, um, hit records come and go. You know, artists are trends, but the person who owns the rights to their music, they're going to make money forever. Mm-hmm. And it's true, right? Think of all the one-hit wonders. You know, they've got one song, but there's somebody who owns the publishing to that music who's really rich. The other guy had money for a little while, so I kind of, you know, quit thinking I was going to play guitar. Kind of went to the music industry, and you know, had some success there. It was good. Parallel to that, I started this blog called The Offside Rules, which mm-hmm. Um, was fun. It was fun. It started off as a lark, and then, um, you know, I kind of recognized that there was a little bit of a, a void in the American soccer landscape. There Which was, was what? There was no crossover between soccer and pop culture mm-hmm. at that time. This is going back ten years ago. There really wasn't. You know, this is pre-Twitter. You know, where everyone is snarky and everyone has a hot take instantly. But at that time, there was none of that. So coming from that music industry, that entertainment angle. You know, this is a time when Perez Hilton was a, a big thing. There was no one doing the equivalent mm-hmm. in soccer. And at the time, Deadspin wasn't even around yet, if you can believe that. There was a time before Deadspin. So I was doing that and uh, being, <laughs> by all accounts, <laughs> including my own, uh, maybe a, little, a bit of a brat and a terrible person saying some things online that I probably shouldn't have. Uh, I never actually checked to see if you wrote anything about me online back in the day or, or like who, who did you offend the most back in those days? I'll tell you, I'll tell you in this kind of good story. My two main targets were Alexi Lawless and Taylor <laughs> Twelman. At the time, Alexi was running the Metro stars after he'd run San Jose, after he'd run LA, um, you know, and I had opinions. I had a lot of opinions. Taylor was, Playing at New England, you know, kind of that stretch where, you know, Taylor was tearing it up. He was a fantastic forward. He was like the Tom Brady of MLS. I think I wrote about him once. I would totally believe that, except New England, and I don't put it on Taylor, but New England couldn't win, right? They just couldn't (laughs) couldn't win the big game. Yeah, they could not win the big game. So I kind of went in on those guys a lot. (laughs) And, uh, you know, life is funny, man. You know, life is really funny because a few years later, my older brother that I mentioned a couple of times, my older brother passed away very young, late 30s. First two guys to reach out to me, though, believe it or not, when he passed away, were Taylor Twellman and Alexi Lalas. Huh. And it was kind of this light bulb moment. It was kind of like, okay, these are real people. They're not just people that you see 
mm-hmm. on TV, you know, and, and now I'm, you know, they're great guys. I can call them up and, you know, Lexi and I will joke about hair metal. <laughs> Taylor will ask me questions about how do I do X, Y, or Z on Facebook, you know, um, <laughs> that's great now. But, you know, I had another, another weird thing though about that blog was I didn't realize it at the time, but, uh, you know, Don Garber and a couple of people at the league office were reading it and, um, I got laid off at MTV rather randomly and suddenly. So I uh, had a little bit of a freak out. You know, I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? I had just had my second child mm-hmm. six weeks before I get laid off from this job. Kind of have a little bit of a freak out, start interviewing for other jobs. One day I am going to interview at Red Bull, not the team, but Red Bull. Uh, the drink. Yeah, the drink, so to speak. Something more on the entertainment angle. You know, they do yeah. a lot of non-sports things as well standing on the platform at times square 42nd street waiting to get the in the r train downtown and train pulls in the door opens and chris schlosser who's uh at the time was uh just come on to mls digital of course now he runs mls digital door opens and he's standing there and he doesn't say hello or anything i see him i go hey chris schlosser and he says i heard you're looking for a job and I say, hello to you, too. <laughs> He's like, no, I got to talk to you. I'm on the run right now. Call me. We'll have lunch. I'm like, okay, that's great. I go to the interview at Red Bull. Nothing happens with it. Call Schlosser when I get home a week later. So we end up getting together. He says, hey, MLS is bringing the website in-house. At the time, it was being run by uh, uh, Sports on Earth, which is uh, owned by Major League Baseball, basically, mm-hmm. which to this day I think is so weird. I understand the business reasons why they would have it, but can you imagine – um, you know, basically another sports league is kind of like your competitor, right? Running your website for you, Pepsi having their red website run by Coke. You know, <laughs> it's not a direct one-to-one comparison, but it's a little <laughs> odd. Uh, but they were bringing the website in house, and he's like, "Would you be interested?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" And he's mm-hmm. like, uh, I-, "I want you to call, uh, email this woman, Aaron. She's Don Garber's assistant." And I'm like, "Why would I do that?" He's like, "Oh, Don reads the blog. He loves the blog." And I'm like, "What have I said?" Immediately, like, there's, I'm like, what have I said about Don on this blog? But I think I was, even though I was just, you know, destroying other people for fun, which is, again, don't do that at home, kids. Uh, I think subconsciously I knew better than to, like, go all the way to the top with it, you know, because then you'll never go legitimate. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I never really went in on Don. I actually really like Don, so I never <laughs> did it, said anything that, you know would preclude me from having this meeting. Still, though, this is a little bit like Roger Goodell hiring Deadspin. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) In soccer terms. Absolutely. As long as Deadspin never said anything about Roger Goodell. They destroyed everybody else, but Roger, we kept him off, uh, you know, on the off chance that he would be able to write me a check one day. And lo and behold, that's what happened. I scheduled this meeting. Mm. I go and I'm supposed to meet Don at like one o'clock or something on a Tuesday. I go, I show up, and uh, I check in. Here to see Don. Yeah, come have a seat. And Mark Abbott comes out. And he's like, oh, why don't you come into my office? Mark Abbott, the CEO of Major League Soccer. Yes. Inventor of Major League Soccer, if you will. Yeah. I mean, Mark, employee number one. Employee number one. He invented single entity. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy that he's sort of the, the origin of it in a lot of ways, and he's still there, and he's still a very uh, influential figure. So I end up in Mark Abbott's office, like a bait and switch. I end up sitting in Mark's office for an hour chatting with him. And I think basically Mark was the gatekeeper Hmm. to make sure I wasn't just some crazy from the big soccer message boards or some crazy (laughs) blogger, you know, like they had to kind of vet me to make sure I was even worth speaking to Don for. So after about 45 minutes in Mark's office, he goes and gets Don. Don comes in. We chat for another 45 minutes and it was great. And in retrospect, you know, long story short, I ended up getting hired. I was the first hire for MLS Digital uh, and ended up working there for three seasons. But in retrospect, the fact that I got an hour and a half, almost two hours of Mark Abbott and Don Garber's time in the middle of a workday is like crazy, you know, like absolutely crazy because it just doesn't happen for most people. They're very busy. They're running a you know this growing right. sports league. So. so you were like, but you were like the pop culture soccer guy for the next three years with. Yeah. With MLS. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of my beat. You know, I, I, I had a, a short period where I was delusional enough to think that, oh, well, I, I'm getting paid to write about sports, so that makes me a sports writer or a journalist. And I realized very quickly that's not the case. You know, I, I think there's a little bit higher standard <laughs> than what I had to offer. 
But yeah, I was trying to do the fun stuff, you know, in an era. And I, you know, now it's everyone wants to do the fun stuff. You have all, every athlete, every club, every league has all these social media platforms and all these different avenues where they can show a player's personality. Right. Um, but back then it was still a new concept. Um, so yeah, I was kind of the person where it was, it was awesome. It was like I basically went from being a, I was basically a professional fan, like still had my season tickets to my team or whatever, but I had an all stadium, all access pass and I would walk around with, Again, this is going back a little side of remember the uh, flip cams, yeah, yeah, like the little like flip cams yeah. before everyone had an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I would be in the locker room with a flip cam, like just you know go to preseason with this flip cam and like record all this stuff. But you know, um, it was cool. It was it was it was so fun. It was this great opportunity to kind of be like, okay, you've got the keys to the castle. Just have some common sense. You know, only got my head, only got only got only got my head bitten off maybe three times and i think two of them involved the new england revolution oh but. imagine that <laughs> a bob craft owned team um but did the other one involve abel xavier because <laughs> because my favorite story of my own getting my head bit off is in the uh visiting locker room bathroom of rfk stadium when uh abel xavier who was playing for the la galaxy learned i was doing a book on beckham's team and spent probably 10 minutes yelling, this is not correct, over and over <laughs> and over again at me in the bathroom at RFK Stadium. Um, I have great memories of Abel Xavier. My last memory of him, I remember reading right after he retired or left the galaxy, I don't know if he actually retired, but that he was going to be doing a, a vampire gangster movie. <laughs> and that was like the last I think I read anything about that guy. It's a little unfortunate that the Abel Xavier area wasn't longer because there was a lot of material there for someone like you and what you do. Oh, man. He, he, he was like, I mean, when I was doing the blog at the time, he, there, you know, there was an Abel Xavier tab and, you know. <laughs> he was one of the few guys that you know once a week you had fresh material on because just a photograph of him would be oddly entertaining and i remember once he was on tmz yeah i remember seeing him a video of him on tmz and they caught him coming out of some store on melrose in uh in in la and they were hey abel blah 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 and their whole angle was so you're a teammate of david beckham and it was just all questions about david beckham but the fact that you know at that time there was no MLS player getting recognized on the street other than David Beckham and David would not spend time on the street. So, <laughs> so in the history of MLS and you followed this league going mm. back to the beginning, who were some of your favorite sort of pop culture stories, topics, uh, potentially musicians who've gotten connected to the league, ridiculous stories over the years, um, anything you really latched onto? The ones that are fit to say on air. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting, man. You find out that like there's all these weird surprises. We had All Star in New York City. I don't know. I think it was the last year. It was probably 2011. I think it was. Mm -hmm. They play All Stars played against Manchester United at Red Bull Arena. So you know it's All Star Week. There's all these activities going on around the city, and uh, it was really fascinating because that was the year that I found out that all of these people, these random celebrities, were secret soccer fans. And maybe had an interest in MLS, but weren't necessarily going to games. But it was funny. I DJed a party, the the media roundtable, not media, the media happy hour. Yeah. Myself and uh, Chris Thompson, the drummer for Vampire Weekend. Yeah. Who like literally one day I was like, oh, his new Vampire Weekend video, and I'm watching. I'm like, he's wearing a Chivas jersey. Why is this guy wearing a Chivas jersey? <laughs> and through an old. Uh, Music biz contact from when I was at MTV. I was the indie label relations guy mm -hmm. at MTV. So basically, I was, for lack of a better term, the gatekeeper between MTV.com and the independent labels. Mm -hmm. So I called up my guy at, at the Vampire Weekend's label. This guy named Chris Chen. I'm like, Chris, what's the deal with uh, Chris Thompson Vampire Weekend? He's like, what do you mean? Is he a soccer guy? And he's like, yeah, I think he is actually. And Chris Chen, the guy from the label, happened to be, and he still is a big soccer guy. He's like, I think he is actually. Why? I was like, can you give me a contact? I was like, I'll get him tickets to the game if he'll, if he'll come DJ this thing. And he's like, okay, I'll reach out to him, see what he says, but no guarantees. I'm like, sure. Phone rings in 10 minutes. Chris Thompson's like <laughs> excited. He's like, I heard they're playing Man United. I want to go. You know, you give me tickets, I'll do whatever you guys want. I'm like, okay. So, you know, this was this is at an era when Vampire Weekend were massive. I mean, they, they, they were, you know, they played the garden. You know, we've got him DJing in the MLS <laughs> media happy hour. I think, you know, 
some of the guys, you know, some of the uh, writers in the room were like, who is this, this this weird guy up there? And it was so funny because the some of the people who did know who he was and were stoked about it, they're like, oh, this would be great. Chris Thompson, and he gets up there and he plays nothing but like 90s hip hop. It's like Lauryn Hill and Wu-Tang Clan and everyone. There's got like this weird like, huh, I wasn't expecting that. And, you know, there was a couple other things that like uh, Judah Freelander, which anybody in American soccer now knows that, right. you know, Judah Freelander is this big soccer nut. But that couple weeks before the All-Star game, there was the Steve Nash showdown in Chinatown that happens right. every year. And I run into Judah Freelander at the after party and I'm like, hey, you're, you know, your friends, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he hands me a, at this point, Judah's like handing out flyers, like a club promoter for his comedy shows <laughs> with his personal email address on it like if you want to book me whatever and i was like oh what are you doing here he's like oh man i love soccer and ping pong which is you know a very disparate you know <laughs> array of sports to be uh, a fan of and he's like oh let's do something for the all-star game i'm like okay so he goes and goes in his literally the same thing says he wants to do something I'm like cool that'd be great i'll email you on monday we'll work it out i email on monday wednesday i get this video in the mail it's on youtube you can find it if you you know type judah freelander mls all-star game where He's juggling a soccer ball in the backyard, and he's doing a voiceover while he's juggling. And as he's juggling, he's, like, taking his hat off. He's taking his coat off, like, removing his clothes while the ball does not touch the ground. Wow. And Judah, you know, if you look at Judah Friedlander, he knows the joke. He doesn't look like someone who would have an athletic <laughs> bone in his body. And he's nice with it. I mean, he huh. is, you know. Nice. Yeah, weird stuff like that. And then the, I think the third and final weird one of the trifecta was they had the pregame press conference. And um, Dominic Moynihan from Lost, Char yeah. Charlie from Lost, yeah, is like sitting like third or fourth row in the press conference <laughs> in a in a Giggs jersey, Ryan Giggs jersey. <laughs> and I'm just looking. I'm like, God, this guy looks like you know. So I like move seats to like see the front of him. I'm like, that's Charlie from Lost. <laughs> like, what's going on here? And get to chat with him, and he's this huge, huge Manchester United right. fan. Like. Again, when you see someone who's at the time, you know, Lost was one of the biggest shows on TV, and he's like wearing his Man United jersey. I'm like, oh, are you here to do press or anything? He's like, no, I just came in as a fan. <laughs> like, you literally just like walked in, you know, this thing. I was like, oh my God, this guy's nuts, but it's amazing. We got to get him to do something. So, but it's funny. There's, yeah, there's all these people out there. There's this, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's fascinating because there is, you get this idea, and, and I, maybe I perpetuate the idea, but in my mind, soccer is kind of this alternative sport. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of the team sport that people that don't like team sports like, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it's kind of this, you know, if I, you know, I'll age myself, but it's, you know, think about when Nirvana blew up, you know, in, in 1994 or whatever, every kid that wanted to beat you up in school suddenly wanted to know where you got your Nirvana t-shirt, you know, <laughs> they used to call you freak before and then suddenly wanted. we're kind of at that, kind of getting to that place now in soccer in America where a lot of people who you know, in previous generations or 10 years ago kind of made fun of soccer are kind of latching on and, and discovering the game and discovering, um, you know, that it's not this boring waste of energy sport of people running back and forth and not scoring goals. They're discovering the passion and the beauty and all these great things about it. I mean, it does seem like there's this kind of cultural moment happening for soccer in the U.S. at this point. And to me, it's got more staying power than I remember when the Sunday New York Times style section had a trend story last year about people in Brooklyn watching soccer. And most of the people in that story, you got the sense we're going to be doing something else with their weekend a month later. Like that seemed to be like a very sort of momentary thing. But this seems like, and I'm a soccer guy, obviously, so are you, but like this seems like it's got more staying power. Yeah. You know, I think it's saturation is such a, a a big key to this right now. I mean, you can turn on your TV now, and there are three channels dedicated to soccer, and there's another three channels that on the weekends are showing soccer, and not just one or two games anymore. I mean, right? I remember when I went to like you know my my sort of first rediscovered soccer in college. I remember Fox was Fox Sports World. I guess was the uh, the yes. initial the initial iteration of it. <laughs> You know, Fox Sports World might have two games on on a weekend, and it was awesome, you know, and only one, you know, no one had that channel yet. I remember my older brother had it at his apartment. I would, like, call two or three of my buddies, and we would go wake him up at eight in the morning, like, hey, we want to watch the game, you know. But now, I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, and in places like New York, I think New York is fascinating um, because we have a very unique soccer culture here, right? There's two MLS teams. The Cosmos are kind of on the fringe of it. 
and that's awesome and it's great, but there's this whole other vibrant soccer culture that is not necessarily built around actually going to a game yeah. or following a local team. You have, I mean, if you go to Legends Football Factory, this bar here in town, on a Saturday, you know, you've got supporter groups for half a dozen teams in half a dozen different countries all going there, like filing in and out, you know, from seven to seven, seven to nine o'clock, it's the Chelsea guys. From 9 to 11, it's the Tottenham guys. From 1 to 3, it's Galatasaray. And it's not even just that. The fascinating thing is it's not even just the the usual suspects, the, you know, the big EPL teams and the Barces and the, and the Real Madrids. But, you know, I mean, they're name an, you know, quasi-obscure team. They've got a, a supporters club here. I remember one time I walked in there and Jack Keane, he used to be the director of football at Nevada Smith's, you know, legendary New York soccer bar. And now he's at Football Factory. I walk in there at like two o'clock on a Tuesday for a photo shoot for one of our clients. They were going to let us use the bar. And over in one corner of the bar, there are three really tall, fair haired guys. And there's the, this computer hooked up to a projector screen. And it's some Norwegian Premier League cup game. Not even like a regular league game. It's like a cup game. There's these three Norwegian guys in the corner of that bar all wearing their shirts. They've got a flag hanging up for I don't know who to see other than them. Um, But it's just like it doesn't matter who your team is in New York. There is uh, you're not alone and that you've got a bar and you've got you've got buddies. I mean, we're sitting here right now, by the way, in my second bedroom of my apartment here in New York. It's a very nice apartment. Uh, which, thanks, we're kind of in a cluttered room, though. But it's also the room where I, I do all of my live camera hits for Fox. Um, so I'm trying to contribute to, on my own here to this, this culture. But we also, on this block here on 25th Street in New York, have Smithfield, which is my favorite soccer bar in New York. And... There's some interesting people that pop in there from a star perspective from time to time. Rod Stewart, oh, yeah. you'll see from time to time. Uh, maybe have you know had a few as many drinks as he had the other night when he was doing the Scottish Cup draw. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> um, Javier Bardem just shows up and watches games. It, it's it is clearly um, something that uh, people with star power like to do uh, to follow soccer here in New York and elsewhere. I before I forget. I mean, you weren't a schmo at MTV. I remember you telling me stories back in the day of like some pretty big names yeah, yeah. that you used to work with. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say I was in the mailroom, but I wasn't in the executive boardroom. Somewhere in between, <laughs> but I happened to be in, a, in the department. I was in the music and talent department. And uh, in short, our main things were we picked what few music videos were on the air and, you know, what what videos were being uh, surfaced on .com and, you know, if they were going to do a behind the music sort of thing or, you know, that was us. But we also booked all the talent for VMAs, movie awards, if anyone was going to do a live special. That all kind of came out of our department. So, yeah, we were kind of a department that you know, the labels like to curry favor to. But we also got to hear a lot of music very early on, meet a lot of artists very early on because the labels would want to have an idea, you know, OK, we've got this record coming. What kind of support are we going to get from MTV? What kind of support are we going to get from radio etc because that that dictates to a degree quite frankly how many of these records are we going to press up mm-hmm. so yeah we would have these we had our own conference room but they decided it was too stuffy to be a conference room so it was it was the music lounge and they you know took out the the boardroom kind of table and uh, the wheelie chairs instead put in couches some beaded curtain mirrored <laughs> walls and the best stereo system in 1515 broadway and you know labels would bring artists in and, and, and play music for us. It was funny. And it was these weird moments where you're sitting at your desk doing your expenses and then you get a little outlook notice. Oh, I got a, I got a meeting with this label at now. So you go in the room and you sit down, you're there 15, 20 people from your department, you know, pretty intimate department come in, someone from the labels there. And then they'll just open their door. Like, so joining us today is LL Cool J. You're like, what? Like, <laughs> Okay, random, you know. One of the saddest things I've ever seen, though. LL comes in with, it's probably the last album he did. You know, he'd been away for a little while doing movies and TV and stuff. He comes in to play his new album, his big comeback record. Plays the first song, everyone's kind of listening, nodding their head, you know, semi-appreciatively. By the second song, people are checking their their Blackberries and their (laughs) iPhones. So by the third song, he stands up and is in the room, and he's like trying to sell it. So he's like rapping along to his album (laughs) 
in this room of like 20 people. It's just so awkward. There's nothing sadder than an old rapper, straight out, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the, that one sticks out. There was a time that uh, a label was like, we're not going to tell you. We brought somebody special. You know, I'm not even going to introduce them. I'm just going to just open the door and let them in. We're like, okay, who is it? And they opened the door and let in these two like skinny, scruffy emo guys come in. And everybody's like, hey, you... No one knows who they are. No one like recognized them. It was the drummer and bass player for um, Sum Forty One. Okay, and you know Sum Forty One were a big band of it. No one recognizes the drummer and the bass player in a band, <laughs> you know, unless the drum. You know what I mean? Unless the drummer is Questlove from the Roots, <laughs> nobody knows the drummer. You know what I mean? And no one knows the bass player. So it's like this really awkward thing. And but then we have some things that were just like I look back now, yeah, and I'm like that was absolutely crazy. There was a period when Jay Z was the uh, vice president of Interscope Records. Okay. And when Jay-Z comes into a meeting, he doesn't come as Jay-Z. He comes as Sean Carter. And he's wearing some chinos and a Cosby sweater. A really big fancy watch that costs more than you make in a year. And uh, he comes in to bring his new artist that he's just discovered. Fresh from the Barbados. This 19-year-old girl named Rihanna. <laughs> and she's this skinny, shy thing. She's got... Like a, you know, I don't know if it's a wig or what, but just very long hair that was not hers. <laughs> and it's covering half of her face because she's so, she doesn't want to make eye contact. She's just like this child. I mean, she was really like this child. And I think she had one single out at the time, you know, that was almost like a regional hit, you know, uh, Ponder Replay. And, you know, it's just funny. Like Jay's like telling us about this girl and how she's great, whether and she's, she's mousy and says like two words, you know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> And then, like a year later, a year later, she's playing at the when uh, Red Bulls bought Metro Stars their first game at Giant oh, Stadium. Yeah. Remember they had that big blowout right. and just motocrosses <laughs> and like all, the, all this craziness, skydivers, you know. And uh, she, yeah, Rihanna played. She was like played before the game outside in the parking lot in this like fun fair thing they'd created and i thought that was really funny i was like oh, i remember this girl like a year ago when she was nobody knew who she was and now she's doing that thing and now i look back she's you know you know one of the top three four pop stars in the world you know nah, that's incredible yeah it was a fun time um so right now i'm curious to know there seems to be some excitement around atlanta united fc mm. coming into mls and i'm wondering if you see that potentially really taking off this year and becoming something of a cultural phenomenon connected to stuff in the Atlanta scene. Well, I don't know if you saw the article in the Atlanta journal constitution today. They just, and this is just this morning, um, that Atlanta United released their season ticket sales. Oh yeah. Like 27,000. 27,000. Yeah. The average attendance in the league last year was 21,600 something. So think about that. There's season tickets, you know, are more than 5,000 <laughs> strong than the average attendances in the league. That's incredible. Um, it's it's completely incredible, especially when you think about Atlanta, not only as a soccer market historically, but also as a sports market historically. It's, it's, it's not as bad as Florida. You know, Florida is this weird just, you know, the NFL has four teams that don't sell out and three of them are in Florida. <laughs> and the NFL is a license to make money. You know what I mean? It really is. But Atlanta is, you know, has a little reputation as being a fair weather or a little right. bit of a sketchy sports town. But the way these guys have come out, and particularly, you know, when you think of um, soccer culture in Atlanta, you know, back in the late 60s when the NASL started, they were one of the original uh, cities. They had two or three teams, but they never, you know, they weren't that team that people talked about with great stars or great attendance. In the interim years, you had the Atlantic Silverbacks, which were long for around for quite a while in various leagues the a league the usl i think they went to the nasl at one point but they folded but they were again they were never one of those markets like portland when it was a minor league club that you know really moved the needle so to see them be that you know those kind of numbers out of the box um is pretty impressive culturally i i think it's interesting because atlanta is this city that you know uh I think about from a music perspective, right? And Atlanta is 90s R&B and hip-hop and current... 90s R&B and then current hip-hop, you know? Um, and Atlanta is one of those cities that has put a lot of um, a lot of people on the map. But at the same time, Atlanta does not get that love that a New York or an L.A. does. Mm -hmm. um, I think it has a potential. And, and 
adding to that that soccer is this the, the demographics the age uh the age of the soccer consumer it's it's very millennial yeah it has the potential to be that that kind of young team you know the team for new atlanta yeah you know you also look at the the immigration numbers you know the, how heavily hispanic it's becoming down there mexican national teams played there two or three times in the last five years and every game has sold out um and not for nothing that logo they have it's fantastic looks fantastic like you've seen like the baseball cats with that logo on it it's pretty cool you know i mean atlanta the, the braves hat is kind of iconic in atlanta but i think you know there's room for that to be like a a secondary thing or for a new person, you know, because baseball is, and that's, you know, the opposite side of that story, right. Is as soccer is becoming the sport of choice for millennials, they are not watching baseball. Right. At all. You know, I mean, not at all, but compared to their fathers, they're not watching baseball. So who knows? Maybe that, that golden a of Atlanta becomes the new, the new Braves a very interesting. We'll look to see what happens there. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is something called, Asbury Park Football Club. Asbury Park Football Club. The biggest club you've never heard of. What is this? Asbury Park Football Club. It is, uh, you get the exclusive here. We've been very <laughs> we've been very obtuse about the real machinations and the real what's going on with this thing. But it's basically a soccer club as performance art <laughs> at this point. Uh, my partner in this guy named Ian Perkins. He's uh, the sweetest man in rock and roll. He uh, is a guitar player. He plays with a couple different bands, Gaslight Anthem, Brian Fallon, who's the singer of Gaslight Anthem. He plays in his solo band. He plays in another band with Brian Fallon called The Horrible Crows. There's just this whole network of bands. But, you know, he's a touring rock musician. And um, one winter, about two years ago, maybe three years ago now, we're sitting in Asbury Park where he and I were both living. And it's boring. It's the Jersey Shore in January. There's not one leaf on any tree. The tourists are all gone. It's freezing. We're bored. I'm like, oh, we should go out and play football. He's English, very English. And uh, he said, we should go out and play football. And I'm like, it's too cold. He's like, like well, we should start a team, though. I'm like, yeah. It'd be really cool, right? Yeah. I was like, but someone could get hurt. And I'm like, yeah, I'm too old for that. Well, let's just start a team, but don't actually play any games. And like, this <laughs> light bulb went off. And we were like, okay, this is this is kind of a great idea. And it's kind of just really like a just, you know, a send up of modern football. You know, there's this whole movement, especially in Europe, of, you know, against modern football. We're like, what if we start a team that was for modern football? All the trappings of modern soccer, supporters group, watch party, merchandise, all of that. Why don't, why don't we put out a third kit? We don't have a home or away kit, but we're going to put a third <laughs> kit out first because the rules of modern football dictate that whatever you have to do to make money, you do. So it just kind of started like that. And it's kind of, and it's been funny. You know, we, we sell some t-shirts and we do some jerseys. We just did a, a collection with Umbro, which was kind of funny and just so confusing for people. They're like, wait, you know, they're seeing it in like Umbro's social media feed. They're like, wait, what is this team? They, I mean, we got a jersey with Umbro. They've got to be legitimate. You know, we would do like, um, last year we did a press release where, I literally paid a architecture student in Sri Lanka that I found on the internet fifty dollars to make stadium renderings. Right? You know how the American soccer fan is like nothing gets guys more excited than a stadium rendering, right? Even if it looks nothing like the finished product. Uh, yeah, nothing and nothing like the finished product. Of course, it never does, right? Pick any soccer specific stadium in America. It's a fun game to play. Like, take that first image you saw versus the finished product, and it's like this is not even the same stadium, like in any way, shape, form, or fashion, you know. Um, but yeah, we paid this guy to make us stadium renderings, and we put the stadium on the roof of a very famous building in Asbury Park called Convention Hall. It's a, a 19, it's been like nineteen oh three, like a Beaux Arts building, okay. designed by the same person who designed Grand Central Station. Wow! It's right on the water. It's half on the boardwalk, half of it's on pilings that go over the the, the water. Famous rock venue, you know, Bruce Springsteen, of course, is from any band from New Jersey cut their teeth in Asbury Park, whether it's Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Bouncing Souls, Gaslight Anthem, like everyone's played there and everyone's played in this room. I mean, everyone from, you know, the Stones to B.B. King to whoever you wanted, the Doors, the Clashes, the last real Clash tour started with three nights in this convention hall. The best story about convention hall is when people talk about Woodstock and they say, I know I'm completely off the rails right now. But Woodstock, the only band of that era that was anyone that didn't play Woodstock was Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin played Asbury Park Convention Hall the night before with Joe Cocker opening. <laughs> Led Zeppelin said they didn't want to go up to Woodstock. Joe Cocker said, screw you, I'm going anyway. 
Joe Cocker goes to Woodstock, and basically that's how he became a star. Yeah. And Led Zeppelin went and played a show in Wallingford, Connecticut, and huh. you know whatever. But anyway, so this building's very iconic. We put these renderings of a stadium on the roof of it, <laughs> and it looks a hundred percent legit. And we put out a press release that if you bothered to read and. You know, not to go into politics, but we know that people don't really, really read things anymore. They don't check to see if it's the source is legitimate, you know. So maybe we're part of the fake news problem. I don't know. But if you read the press release, there were nuggets in there that were very obvious. If you got the third paragraph, you knew that this was this was BS. Problem is, people don't really read. So we put it out there and it was hilarious. Like it was getting retweeted all over the place. People were like, oh, my God, what is this? At one point, you know, uh, Stephen Goff of the Washington Post, he posts it and it's live for forty five minutes, you know, <laughs> before he realizes it's 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 a joke, you know, and that was kind of happening all over the place. But um, yeah. keeping alive the Andy Kaufman performance art flame, kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really the thing. It's really it's just it's fun and it's just. But again, it's like soccer has become such a business, and I say this look as someone who makes their living in that business, you know. It's the truth, but it also doesn't mean it doesn't deserve to get poked fun at, you know, Um, you know, there's this this thing and it's highly romanticized about soccer just being this pure thing where your club represents your community and your city. And I I get that to a degree. Again, like I said earlier, I come from a small town in Texas where you played high school football. You could do whatever you want, you know, in that community. And there's a lot of pride in that. I get that. But I think. If you are, if you're a fifty-year-old Englishman, a, you know, a fifty-year-old guy from somewhere in Brazil, you get that local club and that affinity and all that. You have that history with it. But if you are a thirty-five-year-old guy in Ohio, forget it. You're kidding yourself. This is modern football. It's franchises, not clubs. You're never going to get promotion or relegation. It's not going to happen. So stop barking up that tree and. Don't delude yourself that this is some holier than thou endeavor. This is a business and people will, the point of business is to make money and that's what people are going to do, you know? So it's kind of a little bit of a, you know, let's talk about how ridiculous that is. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but people do some ridiculous things. Got just a couple more questions here for you. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, You know, you work at an agency now, Mm -hmm. um, the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, is next year in 2018 in Russia, and I really have some, you know, some great memories of like ad campaigns for previous World Cups that really stuck out in my mind. And I've talked to players who feel the same way. When they were a kid, they saw the uh, Joga Benito ad campaign series from Nike before. I don't know which World Cup that was. Oh six, maybe. Yeah. Um, or the Cage. Uh, series that you know which was just awesome that I think that was maybe 2002 Um, and looking ahead to this World Cup do you think is it still possible that we might see like really sort of larger than life type things created that kids are going to remember when they're our age absolutely absolutely Um, again it goes back to think soccer's visibility right now in this country is is, it's in a place it's never been before the numbers of people watching, participating, um, it's at this this point of not a saturation point, but it's at this point where, again, we're at a mountaintop. You know, we've just never been here. And it's only going up. So with advertisers, it's funny you say that because I was explaining to someone just the other day how um, for the brands, whether it's the Adidas, Nikes, Pumas of the world, Gatorade, whatever, um, you'll you'll notice that these these ads and these campaigns, there's peaks and valleys, and they kind of pop up and they're everywhere and then they disappear. You know, if you look at the schedule, 2018 is a men's world cup this year, there's nothing going on. Last year was Olympics year before that was what women's world cup year before that was men's world cup. So you have these brands spend a lot of money the year of a men's world cup, the year of a women's world cup year of the Olympics, 2017, a year like this where nothing's going on. They go quiet and you kind of can think, Oh, they're, there's not doing anything. Well, actually, they're spending probably a whole year gearing up for what is that big idea that's going to come uh, next year. If I think of this last World Cup, I was working with uh, Nike here in North America. And, you know, all the animated 
stuff that they did. You know, you had the commercial that you saw on TV that was, you know, they paid a little extra and it was the two minute version. You were seeing this two minute commercial on TV, but that was really a five or six minute film. Mm-hmm. To animate six minutes of high quality animation like that, that, that starts, you know, eight, nine, ten months out in advance. Right. To get it approved, that's another three months before that. To come up with a concept, that's another three months before that. So right now, whatever whatever you're going to be going, oh, my God, did you see that next summer? Someone right now in an agency is sitting around thinking about this um, before they have to deliver it to a client for 18 rounds of reviews. And then they actually start animating this thing, you know. And then it's how does that commercial, you know, it's, it's, it's such a... We're in such a place right now. So if you think about the, uh, I don't know, if you think about the Yoga Bonita campaign mm-hmm. in 06... Um, there was definitely a lot of different tentacles there, right? There was the print ads, and there was the things you saw in stadium. There was the things you saw on TV, but there was probably a marginal web experience. It was probably just some website with like a flash player right. that showed you a video. There was no YouTube. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was none of that. There was no what's our Vine strategy? What's our Snapchat. how do we yeah. yeah? What do we do for Snapchat? And that's and that's the thing you get now with an agency, right? If you sit down and you can come in with this plan or this idea. And someone in that meeting is going to say, um, what's the plan for Facebook Live? Like, whatever the newest platform right. is, someone's like, what's the plan for it? Right. They're not going to say, do we work this into it? They're going to say, what's the plan for it? So there's this expectation that whatever the concept is, it has to touch every digital platform. It has to be in stadium. There needs to be a retail component. How does this manifest in our brick and mortar stores? How does this manifest in our dot-com experience, the brands? But how does it manifest itself in our partners so you'll find yourself suddenly, you know, the assignment goes from, okay, how do I, you know, what, what what's the plan for releasing this boot or this shoe turns into you're writing tweets for soccer.com or whatever these other partners are. It, it gets very granular. So huh. in short, yeah, we're going to see some memorable things. I think this year in particular is going to be very interesting because we have the World Cup uh, in, in Europe. The mm-hmm. time zone thing is going to make it a little tricky, mm-hmm. you know? So, because I, I think brands are smart enough to know that not everyone's going to be staying up to weird hours like we did, you know, in 02 when it was in Japan and you're watching games at 2 a.m. So, I think you might actually see a lot of um, a lot of stuff that would be on TV during game times. I think you're going to see it a lot earlier mm-hmm. in th- because, you know, just knowing that these games are going to be on. It's going to be like Champions League, right? Mm-hmm. How when you watch Champions League in the state. It's the middle of the day. Um, we've done a lot of work with Heineken for the last couple of years. And, you know, their whole way they talk about Champions League in the U.S. versus the way they talk about Champions League in Europe is very different. Mm-hmm. Because in Europe, Champions League, it's like it would be akin to us, you know, that's uh, the playoffs, you know, conference semifinals of the playoffs, like all Sunday night, prime time. It's going to be a big deal. You're going to have all your friends over. That's what you would do for Champions League game in Europe. Here, it's 2.45. Your whole thing is, how do I sneak out of work to go watch this game and enjoy a Heineken at 2 in the afternoon and not look like a, a terrible employee, you know? Uh, so, that, you know, two different, two very different things, experiences you have to sell, you know? So, um, a question for you that I know is a, a, a big question, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Um, you know, you're a veteran of the music industry. You're a veteran now of the soccer industry. Um, in the U.S., as opposed to other parts of the world, soccer is viewed still, I would say, as this kind of white, middle to upper middle class sport. And obviously, there's a ton of Latinos in the U.S. who are involved in the sport, it's a huge part of their lives. Uh, a lot of other minorities in this country, but still, I think it's viewed uh, as largely a white, upper middle class sport. The rest of the world, it's kind of a working class sport. Do you think we're finally starting to see that change in the U.S.? Um, and how can like MLS in particular, I think, sort of change things? Yeah, I think we have seen a change. And it's funny, you know, it's funny because, again, I, I think about when I was six, seven, like I said, playing in a small town in Texas, you know, there weren't a lot of kids playing soccer. There definitely weren't a lot of black kids playing soccer. It was like me and one other kid out of the 23 kids or whatever we had. Um, I think we are seeing more minorities play the game um, at a rate that is equal to 
the our advancement as our position in this country, right? If I think about my parents' generation, my parents are from Louisiana, you know, Jim Crow South, black folks, Latinos, what few there were around in, in rural Louisiana, you know, we were definitely kind of held at a certain level. My generation, that next generation, we've gotten ahead and gone a little further. And with that, you know, we've moved into the suburbs, we've got commuter jobs instead of jobs at the plant or manual labor jobs. So as our station has risen, yeah, our kids are playing travel soccer. You know, my, my son plays travel soccer. There was no way I was ever going to play travel soccer when I was a kid. So I think as our fortunes have risen, we've kind of moved into these sports that were, yeah, considered like middle-class white sports because we've moved into middle-class white neighborhoods as well. Having said that, Looking around MLS, you you you. I don't think if, if if MLS was your first exposure to soccer, you would never have that idea, because MLS is it, it is you know it's the South Africa of sports, it's the Rainbow Nation, so to speak, of of league sports. You look around. I mean, look at the draft this year. The mm-hmm. first five draft picks were all African American this year. Mm-hmm. Which think about the 1996 draft of MLS. You would not have you know that was not what was happening. Um, I think MLS is it's 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 kind of in this place of like yeah it's like I don't think it's I don't I don't think it's in a bad place in regard mm-hmm. to that the thing I worry about honestly like if we're talking you know the world we live in now is where does it go from here I mean we have a new political climate a new political regime that you know there's some some of these things they've passed and some of the things they're talking about passing immigration wise that can have a profound effect on this league. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about making immigration harder from people from Latin American countries and from Middle Eastern countries and African countries, guarantee that affects MLS a lot more than it affects hockey, the national football league. That's a good point. You know, it, it really, I mean, it's really something to think about. And it's also, okay, if you are a Hispanic player, Let's say you can get your your P one visa and your ITC, and they let you over. Do you really want to move your family to a nation that's you know thinking in that way that the government at least is is thinking that way? It kills me that we're in this position, but I totally yeah. understand where you're yeah, saying. Yeah, again, not to turn this into you yeah. know a political show, but that's it's it's something to think about because again, this is a league. I, I feel like this is going to affect MLS. It's going to affect Major League Baseball as well. You know. Right. Some of the other leagues, I don't think it, it affects them. And it also makes me wonder, like, you know, at what point does, uh, you know, I said this yesterday on Twitter and it, it kind of sparked a fun little conversation. But at one point, does one of Donald Trump's fellow rich guys reach out to him and go, hey, chill, you're depressing the nation. You're kind of messing with my money, <laughs> you know, like at some point, because, you know, we're, we're you know, kind of in a place where it's, it's kind of hard to it's hard to ignore what's going on around you. Nor do I think we should ignore it, but it also makes it hard to enjoy those escapist things like sports, you know? Um, but, you know, to, to the original question, uh, it's funny, man, because we are, we have come so far as a nation and our sports world has come so far, you know, there's, there's, there's never talk of a Jackie Robinson moment for American soccer, right? It was just something that's, 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 that's happened. Uh, the growth has happened at these sort of, there's never been, which I've been thankfully very, very surprised outside of one or two random isolated incidents that could happen anywhere, we've never had that sort of taint of mass racism in our, our stadiums. Um, so for me personally, it's like as much as I want to see American soccer grow and push it, that's one thing that I really don't think we have to really push. It's happening now. Is it going to continue to happen again with our new political climate? I don't know. If anything, I think the change needs to be on the benches and the front offices. Mm-hmm. It's it's shocking how few Latinos, African Americans we have in front office positions and in head coaching positions. Yep. It's super shocking. By the way, if anyone can find Ali Curtis, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh for me that is the that's the place where it's it's a little like, okay, we gotta really look at this and, and do a little better. Yeah. Um just to end, I appreciate you being here. Um, comparing Atlanta United, we talked about earlier, and LAFC, which starts in 2018, mm. which is going to have bigger buzz? LA, man. LA, I, I got to say, you know, Atlanta is going to be a big story, and I think every MLS fan is going to pay attention to that. I've been 
much to some people are annoyed with me for saying, but I keep referring to them as the Seattle of the South because I think no, I mean they're going to put in those big numbers in a yeah. big stadium, and they are going to uh, get a lot of attention, right? Just for the sheer scale of it. At the same time, L.A. is L.A. And whatever happens in L.A. is going to be huge. And those guys, you know, I know some of those guys are in the front office. I've had some meetings with them about different things. They're very ambitious. They're very, um, they're very smart. They're going about things a different way. I love it. They have a creative director on staff. Huh. Like MLS teams having a creative director is, again, some people would, would spit and hiss and say it's the worst thing about modern football. But look at the culture of the game right now, man. I mean, here in New York, some of the hippest, coolest people in this city all play in the Bowery League, Downtown Recreational League. And, you know, any team you pick out, one guy's a designer, one guy's a photographer, one guy's a magazine editor, you know. They're rele- they're, they, they make their own kits that are, you know, one of a kind, and they sell them for $250 a pop at the Nowhere FC Football Cafe, which has an art gallery connected to it, you know. <laughs> Um, and this is not just happening in New York. This is happening in other cities in America. It's also happening in Paris. There's a great group of guys in Paris called Lou Ballon FC who have, I mean, they've got like their own like cafe slash bar and where they have all the PSG games on. And it's like the most fashionable people ever. They have great DJs. They're doing collaborations with Nike and all these different clothing lines. So, you know, again, having an MLS team that has, a, knowing all that and like, oh, this MLS team has a creative director. Okay, maybe that that makes a lot of sense. You know, they're ones with the hat thing um, that I mentioned earlier about Atlanta. You know, in L.A., that iconic L.A. Dodgers hat, you know, is everybody wears that. How many times have you, you know, again, I'm, I'm a pop culture, you know, just a voracious uh, eater of it. And I can't tell you how many times I've turned on TMZ and seen someone coming out at LAX surrounded by reporters and they've got their sunglasses on their baseball hat pulled low. Like they're trying to be incognito and it's always that LA Dodger hat. But the first piece of uh, uh, merchandise that LAFC put out was their hat mm-hmm. with their logo. And you know, they really have this idea. Um, there's a guy there in their marketing department, Richard Orozco, who is, you know, class. He's, he's a Hollywood guy. His wife is an actress on uh, Dexter <laughs> He used to work at CAA, which is one of the biggest talent agencies. And, you know, he's he's just that guy, TV producer guy. But his idea was like, no, we want to put this hat out first because, A, their logo is amazing, right? Yeah, it's great. That logo, when you see it, you go to the MLS.com and you see all the logos across the top of the page. That logo sticks out. Like, one of these things is not like the other. And they very much want to go after that L.A. Dodger hat and be and be and have that, that Art Deco L.A. with the wings be sort of this symbol for the city. Um, and it was smart. And I think, you know, that kind of thinking, um, is going to be huge. Now, the other thing is their ownership group. We know who they are, how much money they have. Their stadium location is just such, you know, the Alex, the galaxy have been the flagship franchise of this league pretty much since the beginning, right? They're the blueprint. They're what you would probably want to aspire to. The only blemish is the location of the stadium, not the stadium itself, but it's, it's far. You know, if, right. you're, if you're in Hollywood, downtown, Santa Monica, any of those kind of cool kid neighborhoods, you are not trying to go to Carson to get on the 405 <laughs> in traffic. So now you've got this new team coming in, building a brand new stadium. I think it's 1.9 miles from the Staples Center in downtown, right on the highway. And that is just going to be a huge, if you're not already a dyed and wool Galaxy fan, you're a casual soccer fan and you live in the real heart of L.A., you're going to go see LAFC most likely. And then just, you know, who are they going to get? I mean, I can, you know, I, I, I have my theories and ideas <laughs> of who they're trying to get for day one. And yeah, I fully expect them to use all three DP spots and they're mm-hmm. not going to go and get, you know, even though it's probably usually a smarter thing to get a younger, maybe less well-known guy, just guy's a great player, but they're going to get, it's LA. You got to get box office. Yeah. And I, I definitely think they're going to have a huge buzz. And if they get, you know, really top tier, let's say that, you know, do something absolutely crazy and, and get Cristiano Ronaldo. That, that, that puts them, you know, it'll be Beckham mania part two, you know, you got me thinking now you got me excited. Mm-hmm. Sean Francis. Thank you for joining me. What's your Twitter handle at, at the offside rules. Good stuff. A pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Sean Francis, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Moya Dodd, Kate Abdo, Colin Udo, and Rory Smith. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.